you know, aromatic whites dealkalize yep. very well. It's it's much easier for us to capture that essence and develop products that are uh, very closely aligned to their alcohol counterpart. Hey guys, welcome to the Wine, Whiskey and Weed Show. I have Kayla Winter here from BevZero. She takes care of the technical side of things and especially, you know, the winemaking uh, pretty much leading the winemaking side of things, you know, at BevZero. So we're really going to deep dive into the process of making non-alcoholic wines and also non-alcoholic beverages. So Kayla, welcome to the show. Thank you, Sid. Happy to be here. Super. So let's let's jump in, you know, how you how you got started and a little bit of backstory about your career, please, you know, on, you know, your journey. Just walk us through, uh, you know, what have you been doing? Sure. Um, so I started working in wine when I was 16, um, born and raised in Sonoma County. So it was just very much a part of my life here. Um, I definitely knew I wanted to be a winemaker early at a young age, uh, decided to go learn how to make wine out in Ithaca, New York at Cornell University. Um, beautiful figured, area. Yeah, it's beautiful. And I also figured, mm. hey, if I can learn how to make wine in the snow and in, you know, pretty rough conditions, I, I think I can do pretty well back home here in, uh, you know, Sonoma, Napa. Um, so that was a great experience. Came back, worked in traditional winemaking for several years. And then um, I just felt like I wasn't finding a position that was as innovative as I wanted to be. Mm-hmm. And um, when the opportunity came up with BevZero to grow and pretty much kind of put their non-alcoholic wine program on the map, um, I jumped at it. And so that was in 2019. And I've been a winemaker and director of winemaking since. Nice. Did you have did you have to study a particular course at any university for you know, this process or it was internal learning you did? Definitely internal learning. Um, but there was also, so back in 2019, um, the U.S. market really only had a couple non-alc wines out there. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there was a lot of knowledge that I could gain from talking to our international facilities where, mm-hmm. um, especially in Europe, that the non-alcoholic beverage industry is, is much more mature out there. Um but for the most part, it was either learning from colleagues or learning by figuring it out on my own. Um, nice. and so a huge portion of this was not only learning how to develop better products um, with our process, but also developing supply chains. Given that there were hardly any non-alc wines on the market, um, my clients that we were working with, they they didn't know where to take it to get it packaged or know what government agencies they needed to work with and so Mm -hmm. um, you know we helped them figure all that out so that they could get to market faster and of course we could you know get more throughput in our cellar i think you know uh, we were just chatting that this category is you know uh, out of uh i I guess i can't say out of nowhere because it's a slow you know work in progress and you just said it like it's been almost eight to nine years but it's literally last uh, 12 months have been you know really uh that it's going to stay it's not just something which you know, uh, is a temporary pop. You know, I think this is a very serious category. It's 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 time where Walmart is dedicating a shelf space, right? So it's it's happening now. Like by Total Wine, Bev Mode of the World, you know, all are jumping and putting a serious attention for 2023 plans. Uh, and even the sommeliers and bartenders, which I've been chatting with, are really like you know updating their wine list. So it's it's getting its final uh, you know engraving, I would say, uh, finally. Mm-hmm. 
so I think uh, let's let's jump on on uh, the category. You know, we all know that this is a growing category. I really want to uh, go deeper into what exactly is growing in the category. So, you know, I just read an article uh, somewhere that uh, non-alcoholic wines are not growing that fast as other non-alcoholic beverages, you know, or maybe it's just a, it's just a hard process to make a non-alcoholic wine, you know, yes. or, or so on. So maybe if you can break us through uh, which categories are really expected to grow, where are the opportunities, you know, where you see more demand coming in, you know, from the retail end, so our producers can sort of uh, get value in making those SKUs. Sure. Um, yes. Non-alcoholic wine is growing uh, at a slower rate than, you know, beer and spirits. Um, and there are several factors for that. A, a large one is the fact that it is so much harder to make a non-alcoholic wine taste like an alcoholic wine. With mm-hmm. So with beer, for example, you know, you're starting off with a product that's only five to seven percent alcohol and you're removing a very small overall portion of that product um, with wine you're removing a, a greater portion and it really does alter the the flavor profile um, mm-hmm. you know we do a lot of work in making sure that it does still taste like wine it's just it tastes like wine that's a little different than what you're used to um, and we've seen a lot of consumer interest in non-alcoholic wine. In fact, when I speak to um, the top non-alcoholic retailers that are online, mm-hmm. so like Boisson and Better Roads, um, wine is their fastest moving product, hands mm-hmm. down. Um, but it's wine has yet to really kind of find its stride in um, larger supermarket retail chains um, and distri- in distribution. What's moving in wine? Like, you know, uh, uh... Is it Prosecco's or the sparkling? What's really, uh, you know, uh, moving in the wine? Sparkling for sure um, mm-hmm. is very popular. Um, the bubbles really do kind of provide uh, that mouthfeel experience that a lot of people are looking for in, mm-hmm. in non-alcoholic wine. Um, but red as well. And so it's interesting because mm-hmm. red is the hardest True. Uh, to get right, essentially. But it's what consumers want the most. And so... Um, when I when there is a good red that hits the shelves, I, I hear from our retailing partners that they they can't keep it, uh, you know, on the shelf. It's it's the, one of the top selling products. So um, definitely uh, bubbles and red. And then also, what's really interesting is premium products are moving a lot faster on these kind of oh. online markets. Um, premium being, and of course, this is all new. Um, so. For a non-alcoholic premium would be like twenty to thirty dollars a bottle. Mm-hmm. Those tend to be um, top sellers for a lot of these online retailers. But of course, if if we're going to see a huge area of growth in national distribution, typically those are more affordable SKUs. And so, mm-hmm. I think we can see when you're when you're asking, you know, what's growth? What's what's next for non-alcoholic? Mm-hmm. I see growth on both ends of the spectrum. I think there are sommeliers and restaurants and and high-end retailers that are asking for higher priced, more premium products, products Mm -hmm. that actually do have a story with, um, you know, vineyard designates and uh, lesser known varietals. Um, Mm -hmm. But I also see on the other side of things, you know, people want uh, more higher quality, affordable brands that are going to be in a Target or a Trader Joe's or something like that. So Mm -hmm. 
um, huge opportunities for growth on both ends, which is great for brands because either you can, you know, pick one to focus on or um, what we see a lot of brands doing now is, you know, have different tiers of products so mm. that you can basically uh, fit all of those consumer needs. What my mind says is usually, you know, the Pinot Grigio or the, you know, uh, Pinot Noir kind of uh, health conscious, you know, a young uh, uh, 25 to 35, 40, you know, age group usually mm -hmm. preferred this Merlot sort of varietals, not the, the cab people, right? Uh, the, the lighter wines are, uh, is it correct that that is the target audience? Uh, it's better to make a Pinot Noir, uh, you know, non-alcoholic than going heavy ca cab. I don't think there is enough diversity on the market right now to really say that consumers are choosing wine varietals specifically based on, um, you know, what they tend to consume Understood. in traditional wine. Uh, you know, there's not that many out there. So usually if, if you're interested okay. in non-alc wine, you know, you, you look at the list and then sure, if, if you're really into Sauvignon Blanc, you might pick some Sauvignon Blancs, but there's only a, a few. So then, you know, what do you move on to next? Um, mm. But I, I do think that's, we're going to see more of that in the future. So um, one thing that uh, is very interesting is, you know, aromatic whites dealkalize yep. very well. It's, it's much easier for us to capture that essence and develop products that are uh, very closely aligned to their alcohol counterpart. Mm -hmm. um, and aromatic whites, you know, you think of like Gewürztraminer, Viognier, um, Muscat as well. We don't see a lot of folks gravitating towards those because they're kind of trying to stick to the classic, you know, Chardonnay, Cab uh, wines. Mm -hmm. So um, there's a huge opportunity in that that I think is somewhat untapped. What about spirits? Do, do you do that as well or just focus on the wine? We don't dealkalize spirits. Um, we can. Sure. When you have, you know, a product at 50, 60 percent alcohol and you remove the alcohol, you're really not left with much <laughs> volume. And so, yes, yeah. it's possible. It tends to not be as uh efficient and and you know lucrative as it would be for most what most of these uh spirit companies are doing which is just taking a water base distilling botanicals and various flavors and adding them to it it's a much cheaper way and faster way to make the product but we have worked with some folks on kind of non-alcoholic wine based cocktails yep um, the ones that we're currently working on have yet to hit the market, so I can't speak too much about them, but um, that is another area I think that we're going to see a lot of growth in because mm. with all of these products, there are no rules right now. Yeah, yes, that's the thing. Like, uh, I was just going to say that, that it opens up so many different avenues like 7-Elevens of the world or the non, you know, wherever you can't legally sell, you can, you know, have the brand at least there. It can act as an advertising as well, where, where alcohol ads not allowed, for example, you can just show that, you know, as well. Sure. Uh, yeah. There are many angles uh, big brands are using this, you know, to jump in. Exactly. You can sell it in so many more places, you know, you can advertise and, and do all that. But also like the consumers who are attracted to these products are already, you know, starting out with an open mind, right? Mm. They want something new and different. And so they're not, yes, we are kind of in a parallel movement along with the alcohol counterparts that we're working with. However, if you do something completely out of the box, it's not unlikely that a consumer would say that looks interesting. I want to try mm. it as opposed to 
that's unfamiliar. I'm not sure I want to try that because we see that a lot in the, you know, traditional spaces, you know, that's why we see so many cabs and Chardonnays or uh, on the market because they know that's what sells and people feel comfortable with that. Um, Mm -hmm. This is really an opportunity to go outside the box, find something totally new and different and see, you know, see what consumers say about it. If the product Mm -hmm. tastes good, if it's healthy um, and or at least healthier than, you know, the alcoholic counterparts uh, and you have good branding and marketing, then we see a lot of success stories with interesting products. Mm -hmm. Have you have you got enough uh, like a little bit of data where you've seen that usually it's the first time drinker that is uh, on that category? Or it is uh, someone who is just having dry January month, or maybe you know I just don't want to get. I have to drive tonight. It's it's usually a utility use, and then you don't get a repeat order from that customer because now you know they're back to their you know uh, whatever they were doing. It's just maybe that moment, particular moment, they choose that. Let me not put alcohol in my body. Yeah, there was a recent um, article that just came out. They links is a new um, kind of consumer insight platform, and they mm-hmm. did a study recently and found that. There is 65% greater interest in non-alcoholic products from people who have participated in dry January compared to those who have not. So, mm-hmm. you know, you can extrapolate a few things from that. But what I see is consumers who have tried a dry month and, and tried uh, mindful drinking and abstaining, maybe mm-hmm. not entirely, but just for a short period of time, they clearly have a positive experience from it because they're continuing to engage in alternative products and, and drinking less essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so that was a really interesting piece of data, but I definitely do see the majority of the market is not complete abstainers. Mm-hmm. It is primarily folks who are just trying to drink less, trying to have more mindful experiences. Got it. Um, I think I I do have uh, more data on that that I can pull up here, but um, the it wouldn't be a, as big of a movement as it is today if it was just consumers who were entirely sober, because that's Got a it. somewhat small subset of our you know society. And so the reason why we're seeing so much growth is because there is a overall society. So there is there is a palate development happening there. There is people getting used to this uh, taste uh, and and. Pretty much, you know, the whole category. Absolutely. Mm. Absolutely. Let's go on the business of uh, this, you know, uh, Kayla. I want to understand one basic question. Is the cost to make wine uh, more uh, compared to the normal wine? It is. Ah, um, okay. Real quick, I, I found that that data point. 82% of non-alc buyers also purchase alcohol. That was from a Nielsen study in 2022. So throwing that out there. But um. Okay. Yes. So this is very, very interesting topic. When you're talking about non-alcoholic wine, when I, when I say that I'm talking about de-alkalized wine, not. Yeah. Um, like uh, less than 5%, I mean, right? Yes. Less yeah. than 0.5%. So <clears throat> to do that, you have to start off with a alcoholic wine that has mm-hmm. undergone fermentation that has those complex flavors uh, and the chemistry that you get from fermentation, remove the alcohol and then package it and and you know ship it around the different facilities because we don't have packaging um, capabilities here. So there are all these extra steps, right? So all of the resources and time and energy that goes into making a wine, that is included in the products that uh, are on so the market. It's a lot more. I mean, it's it's a really 
additional like for for a six dollar merlot you know uh another sku that just becomes ten dollar it's yeah big difference exactly and so a huge part of the growth that we're seeing is because uh folks like us and um you mm. know brands themselves are educating consumers on the fact that this is this is not something that you're drinking because it's less than right you're not um, you shouldn't be approaching a non-alcoholic wine and saying uh, it's it's inferior or it's, um, sure. you know, less less exciting, less effort than an alcoholic wine. And that's why I'm drinking it. Right. Most of the consumers that we're seeing are, are choosing these products because they want an elevated experience without the alcohol. And mm-hmm. so we just have to continue to educate um, everyone, but but consumers in particular that, you know, as with any premium product, as with any specially curated product, there mm-hmm. is a greater cost associated with it. And that is the way you need to look at these products as well. Uh, mm-hmm. And as so I said, I that, 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 premium grow. So that's working. That looks like a big bottleneck to for the distillers and wineries to get into the game because, you know, uh, it's the commerce is still not supporting like the retailers have to make more money. Wineries have to make more money. You know, uh, it has to be a cheaper alternate. If there was a cost saving uh, involved, then people would get faster on board. Yes. Sure. Uh, so let's go on the process, right? You know, uh, especially for the current winery, you know, what are the ways they can uh, introduce this uh, into their facility? You know, I'm sure they have, you know, one, one option is to work with you guys. So you can lay on, lay that out as well. But one is completely mm-hmm. internal process. What can they do? What do they need to buy? You know, what is investments, you know, needed to launch a new SKU? Right off the bat, you need some way to remove alcohol. <laughs> and that's where oh. we come in. Um, so we use, uh, either, depending on the facility, and, and we do have a facility here in California, South Africa, and one in Spain. Um, we use vacuum distillation. So here in the U.S., we have spinning cone columns that will uh, basically lower the boiling point of uh, ethanol by putting it under a vacuum. Sorry, the- one, one, just a one stop there. So the wine has to be shipped to your facility first? Yes. If you're using okay. us as a processor, yes. And um, if not, can your technology go to the winery? Like I did not understand technology. Where, where does this process happen? So, yes. So the two options is you buy your own equipment um, and okay. we do sell technology for Got deacquisition. It. it is uh, a large expenditure. It's definitely not like, I know there's, there's a fair amount of um, pieces of equipment that you can buy in beer that are like, you know, several thousand dollars and it runs a very small amount. Um the technology that we have is certainly uh, an investment and would require a, a much larger throughput to make it worthwhile for a, a winery. So that's an option. But if, you know, on your way to that, as you, if you know, while you're trying to grow, you can utilize mm-hmm. our services. So yes, in that case, you would, uh, the client would ship wine to BevZero. Mm-hmm. We would remove the alcohol to the desired degree. It could be non-alcoholic, but it also could be a low alcohol product. Um, mm-hmm. And we do quite a bit of that as well. And then we ship the product to the desired co-packer. It could be back to that winery if they have their mm-hmm. own packaging capabilities, or it could be to one of our partner packagers. Um, and then once it's packaged, of course, then it goes into various modes of distribution. And this happens in the Flexitank? 
Yeah, it can be a, a tanker truck. It can be a tote. Um, okay. Our smallest machine here at BevZero can run 120 gallons. <laughs> so, um, so it can be a small batch run as well, which they want to sure. start with. Yeah, we can do small test launches. Um, you know, you do 500 gallons, put it on the market, see what happens. Uh, but we can also scale up. If we're running uh, full steam ahead, we can run about 1,300 gallons an hour. And, and, and what, what sort of timelines, you know, let's say someone shipped you the wine, uh, what, how much time uh, does the process take before you ship them back? A few days. That's um, it? That's it. Mostly because we, would, we, we hold it up for a day for doing QC checks and making sure everything, um, you know, alcohols are correct and SO2 levels are what their client is requesting. Um, so depending on the size of the lot, we process it within, you know, a day or half a day and then um, we ship out the next. And uh, sorry, you were explaining the process. So now let's, let, you know, uh, basically how does the aromas get removed? You know, how does the alcohol get removed? You know, uh, what, what are the steps in that? So with this uh, technology, we're doing a few things to the product to allow us to extract alcohol without what you would be considered, you know, boiling the product and, and ruining it. So, you know, if you're uh, making brandy, for example, you know, you put wine on a a pot still or a cash still, and all you want is the alcohol that comes off. What's left just gets cooked, and it's not a very you know desirable product, and that usually gets dumped. So obviously, we want both fractions. So we're using technology that is much gentler and allows um, kind of less of that cooked uh, aroma and uh, destruction of the wine uh, mm -hmm. when we're processing. So the technology does that in in three ways. First is putting it under a vacuum. So by doing that, you decrease the boiling point of ethanol so that you only have to add a small amount of heat um, within, it's like 100 to maybe 110 degrees in our column. You can actually walk up to the machine and touch it and it's not gonna burn you. So um, that is one of the, the keys there, but then also um, creating a thin film to uh, increase extraction is part of the process. And then there is a stripping vapor. So we pull a very small portion of the wine, uh, mm -hmm. heat it, uh, we, we do boil that under atmospheric conditions. And then we uh, introduce that on the bottom of the still and that basically helps extract uh, further molecules as it as it rises. There is uh, There are a few YouTube videos if you wanna see like a schematic that probably is much better at explaining it than I did. <laughs> um, so you can find that on BevZero's YouTube. I saw one video of, of one of the Australian winemakers I was just chatting with. Uh, he had an actual video uh, that first step was removing aromas. And then uh, yes. again, the second step was removing alcohol. Correct. Yes. Thank you uh, for reminding me to, to touch on that part. It's and then, and then adding back the aromas so that, you know, the, the sense, sensory parts come back. Yes. So we have determined that the majority of the aromatics uh, of the wine are within the first 1% of the distillate we pull off. Mm -hmm. So we actually do what we call an essence strip first. And we pull off 1% distillate. We set that aside, as you mentioned. Then we do the dealkalization down to whatever set point is requested and then add that essence back. So when we're talking about non-alcoholic wine, we'll actually dealkalize down to maybe 0.2, 0.3%, and then mm -hmm. add the S back up to 0.5 or just under 0.5 for the client. And what about uh, uh, like spirits, you know, is, is the same uh, sort of, 
you know, the cost just goes up, you know, as well there because of this whole process or, you know, uh, it depends on the percentage of alcohol, you know, like beer maybe just has 4%. So maybe it's cheaper because it can be just a few hours. I don't know. I'm just, you know, illiterate. No, great question. Great questions. Um, so yes, for spirits, it is a slightly different process and we're pulling much more. Um, so, you know, when we do costing, it's, it's usually based on the, the product itself. There's a wide variability within spirits um, mm-hmm. and what, you know, clients send us. So um, if that is something that you're interested in, uh, please contact us and, and we can talk about it. But um, for the most part, when we're talking about well, wine and cider, usually the the same pricing, similar process. For beer, we actually work with um, partner facilities that are housing mm-hmm. the Golo units, which is the dealkalization technology that we sell. Uh, so we work with Barrel Brothers um, and, uh, and a handful of other breweries who are housing the units. And basically, um, we do offer product development for beer, but when it comes to the production, it's all happening at one facility, which mm-hmm. is the best way to process the uh, the beverages without having, you know, trucking steps and things. And especially with beer, since it's very, very sensitive to oxidation, um, that can be a concern. So we built out that program slightly different than we do with wine. What can go wrong? You know, uh, where have you seen, uh, you know, especially when people are trying themselves, you know, what, what have you seen uh, go- gone wrong? The wine itself, um, I guess. A lot. <laughs> so the one thing to really consider here is, when you have alcohol removed wine, especially down to like less than maybe two or 3%, you have a beverage with the complexity and molecular structure of wine. Mm -hmm. It is slightly different because ethanol is removed, but for the most part, the majority of the sensitivities of wine remain. So you still have to deal with um, you know, colloid stability and oxidation and, and, and sulfur and things like that. But you also now have a product that is has no alcohol in it and is as susceptible to a wide uh, variety of microbes as a juice or a uh, soda. The pH of wine is uh, sorry. The pH of non-alcoholic wine is very similar to the pH of of alcoholic wine, so it does that does eliminate quite a few uh, you know pathogens, and so the food safety is slightly less of a concern, but in terms of you know quality control, we have seen a lot of things go wrong with re-fermentations um, and microbial contamination. So in terms of pr- uh, production, once the alcohol is removed, it, there needs to be a very quick and concise uh, production chain into bottle within a week, maybe two weeks. So it requires you know various filtration methods. A lot of our clients are adding Velcrin some are adding soda preservatives, um, sterile filtration in line to packaging, you know, all of these concerns. Um, it's not impossible. And, and if done right, there really shouldn't be any issues. But of mm. course, you know, in, in the real world, you know, things always come up. So, you know, the, the shelf life uh, get affected as well. Like let's say 20, like some, some wine like Yellowtail usually is good for like two, three years, for example, you know, just, just, to, you sure. know, it's a drink now wine. So yes. if you do this kind of process, you know, uh, does that get affected as well? Yes, this, these are definitely drink now wines. Um, I would say the it's best to consume a product within six months. That so that means the vintage sort of wines is also not the market you would want to play with. 
Well, not necessarily. Like the, 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 the uh, cask wines, you know? Yeah. They, we're, no one is saying, you know, purchase my wine and sell it for 10 years here. Um, but, you know, there are, depending on the way you make your products, there actually can be quite a bit of translation of ex- expression of the wine from, uh, you know, alcoholic to non-alcoholic. And so vintage does, you know, play a part there. And if you have a, uh, you know, if, if we're, for clients that are looking at doing appellation or vineyard designates, you know, the vintage differences that you see mm-hmm. in, in that vineyard can carry over through the de- deacalization process. So um, that aside, yes, in general, these are kind of drink now products. Um we usually clients are putting one to two year shelf life on there um, because it's not a microbial concern, but if, if you're, you know, the wine is going to age. And then if you add any natural flavors, which a fair amount of products do um, those flavors are interacting with the wine as well. And so you will see some evolution within bottle of the flavor Mm. profile. Let's go a little bit on the consumer side, right? Like uh, how do you know that, it's a good product. Like, for example, when you are drinking wine, you know, it's the same sort of thing. Like when, you know, you know that it's corked or, you know, what kind of things are there? Three to four things that you think that, okay, you know, this is not a bad uh, product. My answer is that there is no answer right now. (laughs) So we are there like, uh, you know, if you, you know how we evaluate and do competitions and judge a wine, you know, like that, are there any criteria that sommeliers or bartenders professionally actually uh, see that, okay, this is a great non-alcoholic product. Yes and no. So yeah, as you mentioned, there is an entire lexicon and kind of structure for evaluating alcoholic wine that humans Mm -hmm. have been developing for centuries. Mm -hmm. We do not have that in non-alc. So to one person and, and even, even like two sommeliers that are, you know, same level, classically trained, they could have very different ideas of what a good non-alcoholic wine is Hmm. and same for you know uh within the wine industry i mean you can have like a barefoot drinker and then you can have a you know a high-end uh lafitte rothschild drinker right Mm -hmm. they are going to have very different ideas of what quality is um and so right now it's it's just so uh, across the board um I know what I like and don't like, and, and, you know, so does every Mm -hmm. other consumer. And I think that's, it's, it's a struggle, but it's also kind of refreshing Mm -hmm. because the products are evaluated in a much more simple way as as opposed to trying to compare to, you know, when you, when you, when you consume wine, it's very hard not to, to think of it as, okay, is this in generally, is this a a high-end wine, right? You know? Like when, when folks do blind tastings and you know that there's like one $5 bottle in there and you don't want to be the one that says that's the nice wine. Right. Yeah. But, but that's all, you know, mental and societal uh, pressures there. Whereas with these non-alcoholic products, who's to say what's great. It's it's yeah. all your own personal opinion. So I find that refreshing, but I know that can be frustrating for, you know, the higher end uh, sommeliers and wineries and winemakers and, and retailers that are like, how do we how do we justify a price point or how do we say you know compare this is better than the other and there are a lot of non-alcoholic competitions and a fair amount of wine competitions are adding a non-alcoholic uh level and, mm-hmm. and kind of in, in the competition how they're evaluating them I don't know 
Um, so I think we'll, we'll see that uh, over the next decade, that's definitely going to come to shape. You know, uh, some practical takeaways that you would advise wineries to take when they're approaching this whole category, right? Like, I think it's time where something is happening and everyone, especially the big players, like I just saw that you started a white label service with O'Neill, I believe, right? Uh, for uh, we're working with Summerland wine brands. Summerland, sorry, my bad. But uh, I think uh, big, big uh, co-packers are jumping on board, big, you know, uh, wine, big retail chains are jumping on board. Uh, yes. Somewhere, I think wineries need to pay attention to this category for sure. So what what is your advice on, you know, uh, what should be in their business plan? The first thing to consider and then the second and how, how shall they start planning and thinking about it? Like just three or four bullet points about get this right before you even start? I think one of the main things is uh, wineries need to make sure they have a good understanding of the regulations on these products, their FDA. I thought, I thought there were no regulations. <laughs> no, they're, they're, food, they're food products. And so okay. the same okay. regulations that you have, you know, for a juice or a soda, a lot of those apply to these. So you need nutritional panels, you need ingredients lists. Um, there oh, are just you know, various uh, considerations there. But what I what I see happen quite often is winery will call the TTB and say, hey, do I need a cola for my non-alc wine? And mm. the TTB will say yes. But the T, that's not a TTB question because mm. it's not a TTB product. But True. so I always tell people, first of all, know the regulation body that you need to be working with. These are FDA products. Then ask that uh, body of the government body, what the the answers are to your questions. So TTB is going to give you an answer regardless of whether it's their jurisdiction or not. Um, and so, yeah. you know, if you ask the FDA, do I need a cola? They're going to say, of course not. This is the food product. This is not an alcoholic product. Uh, mm. So that's probably, you know, one of the biggest uh, considerations that I, I think people really need to make sure that they understand. Um, but beyond that, um, What's what's interesting is because these products, you know, they don't have a standard lexicon, the standard of identity in terms of what is quality, you know, what uh, consumers are looking for. We've made it very easy uh, here at BevZero to do small trials and to just kind of dip your toe into this process. So what I would recommend is if, if you're interested in this, but you want to know, you know, what your particular customers mm -hmm. are interested in do a couple small batches, put it in your mm -hmm. tasting room, trial it, get, get feedback, you know, see what they want and what they like. Um, and I, and I know that it's going to be different from winery to winery. Um, you know, everyone has their own style and their own opinion on, mm -hmm. on wine quality and, and their preferences. So that's what I would say is don't feel like you need to start off with a, you know, huge national brand, um, that's great. And of course, a lot of people want to get there, but just, mm -hmm. just start trialing it, see what your consumers uh, think, see what feedback they have. Um, and that'll help you develop a plan to put a product in place. that's going to be more successful than just trying to shoot in the dark. So let's say they start with you, you know, a little bit small batch, and then there's a time where, you know, the scale out grows and then it makes sense to invest, you know, uh, you said it's, it's high. So I'm just throwing a number here to get an idea. Uh, so let's let let's say it's two hundred thousand. I don't know. You know, for example, Our equi the equipment. Yeah. Um, depending on the size of the machine, you're looking definitely three or four times that. 
Okay, so let's say it's a million dollars, you know, sure. for example, to start a whole non-alcoholic uh, processing plant, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so which means technically, uh, you know, to, to like you need a $5 million sales plan. I mean, again, that sort of investment, right? Yes, something like that. Yeah, I mean, it's, it. it's definitely not... So that's, that's understood. That's, that's like capital. And then what about the technical capabilities? Do I need to hire a technical winemaker like you or people can just, they don't need to add any specialist or lab person or someone overseeing this entire uh, thing or it, you think it's manageable? There's going to be a learning curve with the products, with the products, with the machines. Uh, so depending on the capacity of your team, Understood. Yes, you could you could train. So you rather hire and save on the learning curve or you make mistakes and lose exactly. money there. Got yes. It. So no, yes, if you want to hire BevZero um to help, you know, consult on project management, product development, we're here Got for it. that. Um I do have a, a handful of clients that want to do it on their own. Um and yes, they haven't hired us, but they might call me and say I can't figure out this, you know, mouthfeel. I don't know what I'm doing. Do you have any tips? And of course, we're we're more than willing to to give them some ideas and, and resources because at the end of the day, the category success is our success. And we want to boost everyone around us, um, you know, high tides, raise all boats, that kind of thing. I, I think, you know, there will be a, a point where, let's say, you know, uh, Summerland is selling 10 SKUs to uh, Target, for example, right? Uh, and mm -hmm. then maybe Target says, okay, we're going to cut down uh, two SKUs and we're going to add two non-alcoholic. So they rather some other vendor coming in, Summerland's going to say, hey, hang on, I can do this as well. You know, so I think I think somehow the big guys will have to start looking at this because they don't want to lose the shelf placements or relationships with the big retailers. You know, Yeah, uh, exactly. They, because the price point is higher for non-alcoholic yeah. wine, um, it does make sense for larger distributors and retailers to have their own products. Uh, with Summerland, we actually, um, Summerland has developed a few control brands that are available still uh, for anyone who's interested in just, you know, buying a finished product all the way yep. through and putting it on the shelf. Um, and then of course your uh, margins are going to be. One, one quick question. Uh, so that means there is no three tier law here, right? Like a distributor can own Correct. a private label and get their thing going as well. Yep. Nice. That's yeah. a good one. No, Retailers can. It's actually, you know, it's scary for a lot of people because yeah. they are used to wine. I think laws. retailers will own that category technically, not the suppliers, if there is no three-tier. Yeah. It, it Literally, the, the entire distribution system is busted wide open mm. when you're talking non-out. And so there is a lot more that's possible. We do see some states... Um, kind of struggle with setting up legislation for non-out because they're like, well, is it is it wine? Is it not? What do we do with it? But in general, yes, it is much easier to sell non-alcoholic products than it is wine. And um, you don't have to deal with like, you know, of course, for distributors, yes, you can own your own products. But for brands, we like, to, you know, we tell them you don't have to work with three tier distributors mm -hmm. that are going to take a much higher cut than you know food distributors and so you can sell direct to you know yeah. you can do wholesale imagine cisco selling your wine now wow boom yeah. everywhere for example i mean i'm sure this may be playing up as well that if you're calling non-alcoholic wine but you can't call wine then otherwise it goes to the three tier is, is there conversations happening around you can use the word wine beer or spirits if you use that then it's something to do with the alcohol system uh right now in 
when looking at the legislation, you can call non-alcoholic wine, wine, and same for beer and all of that. Um, There are countries where that's not the case. Uh, And so that can be really tricky. Like, like in Italy, for example, they're really struggling with that right now. Um, But at the same time, like what we see from the cannabis industry, you can't use the word wine there, but if you put it in a wine bottle, everyone knows what it is. Right. And so there, there are definitely ways around it, but um, where I really see kind of an issue is like for online advertising, for example, like Mm. for in on platforms where you can't advertise alcohol, like LinkedIn, you know, we have people saying non-alcoholic or, you know, NA wine and it's getting flagged and reported because it has the word alcohol or the word wine. And so, yes, there are some growing pains there, but in general, um, we haven't seen too many issues with, with that kind of, uh, you know, small detail. So any, any closing remarks, Kayla? Just that I, I think this category is extremely exciting. It's not as scary as you think. <laughs> so that, I'm speaking directly to winemakers right now. It's not as scary as you think. It's fun. It's innovative. Uh, it is a category in which you can kind of flex your creativity. Um, I've enjoyed uh, this process so much in my three years here at Bev Zero. Um, reach out to us if you need any help. We're, we're here. Um, we're happy to work with you. And also we're going to be at um, the IBWSS and Cannabis Drinks Expo and we're, we'll be exhibiting. So um, please come and meet us and we're excited to, to participate.